Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Across America, empty tables are gathering dust. No more clatter of pans from restaurant kitchens. From Michelin-starred eateries to neighborhood pizzerias, most of America's independent restaurants, employing over 10 million people, have been shuttered for weeks. Even as stay-at-home orders are lifted, they contemplate a future in which good service means as little interaction with diners as possible, where the numbers of people they can feed in a night is severely reduced, and a future without sharing plates, no one licking their fingers, however tasty the sauce. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how will COVID-19 change the way we eat? My guest is Marcus Samuelson. Born in Ethiopia and raised in Sweden, for the last 25 years, he's been a proud New Yorker. As a bright young thing at Aquavita, high-end Scandinavian restaurant, he won the James Beard Award for New York City's best chef. In search of different flavours, he went on to found his own place, Red Rooster, in the heart of Harlem, known for reimagining local soul food alongside Swedish classics. So think cornbread and meatballs with a twist of Ethiopian spice. He now runs 31 restaurants in eight countries and he hosts the TV series No Passport Required, exploring America's many immigrant cuisines. But the last few months have presented a very different challenge. With many more people pushed below the breadline, Samuelson has converted his restaurants in Harlem, Newark and Overton, Miami into community kitchens. And in an effort to save America's independent restaurants, he's banded together with friends and rivals in the industry to lobby Congress for help. Marcus Samuelson, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, how are you? What do you mean rivals? There are no rivals in the restaurant industry. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's a notoriously friendly place. Yes. No one wants to have a restaurant just a little better than their neighbour. Yes, there you go, there you go. So you've written that the kitchen has been your laboratory, your studio, and even your church. How did you first fall in love with the idea of food? Well, I really fell in love in cooking through my Swedish grandmother. I was adopted from Ethiopia and grew up in Gothenburg, west coast of Sweden. And it was really my grandmother, Helga, that taught me not just technically how to make food, but uh, how to love food picking apples and making apple jam, turning a roast chicken into chicken soup, uh, but the one that just warms your heart on a cold Swedish January Sunday or something like that. And that's the main reason why I'm, you know, 40 years later in food. And you decided to go to the US to pursue your career and make your culinary life there, and you headed to Harlem. Why there? Well, I think the, the blessings of... Uh, being born in Africa, being a black man, it gives you certain parameters or certain opportunities, right? Depending on how you view it. 
And I was always told by chefs that I shouldn't dream as high as my colleagues. Europe was not ready for a chef that came from Africa and had high dreams. And that made my choice to go to America, specifically New York, as a person of color. It's in urban areas like London and New York where you, yes, there's a lot of issues, but it's also a lot of opportunities for people of color and creatives. So in my household, Harlem was always talked about as a place of creativity. That's where Langston Hughes came from. That's where James Baldwin worked and wrote. That's where Maya Angelou lived. That was in the center of a lot of music and culture. So I felt eventually one day I should open a restaurant in Harlem, and I did. I think you said when you understood Harlem, you understood America. What was on your mind when you used that description of part of New York, a very sort of specific part of New York, but also a very specific part of America that you adopted? Yeah, I mean, I still think so. If you and I would go on a bike ride from East Harlem all the way over to the West Side, you would see its beauty in terms of the parks and the waters. Uh, you would see the architecture of, you know, 1890s brownstones. You would also see the Eastern Harlem being uh, Jewish and Italian-American centered. And then eventually we come into El Barrio, which is Spanish Harlem. And then you come into the center of Harlem, which is still African-American to its core. And then further out west, Senegalese, West African, Little Africa. And then as you go up the hill, you come to Colombia and you see youth and, and aspirations and we can take over the world, dreams. And eventually you come to the water on the other side. And that is America. It has its highs, it has its lows, it has poor, it has rich. And it's very, very contradicting and complex. And that's exactly the dynamic in America. And it's also why it's so hard to understand sometimes for an outsider. And it's also very often why we love America. All of that stuff combined. I like the idea of a kind of panopticum all in one mm-hmm. neighbourhood that you've, you just laid out so beautifully. I almost feel I was on that bike ride. And, and right now it's the sort of thing that sounds like the most exotic treat in the world. Yep. But tell me a bit about how the pandemic has affected the community that you work in. Rightly, you describe the variety and the opportunity of Harlem, but it's also an area with a lot of very poor people. Over 50% of the population is black. Average incomes are a lot lower than they are citywide. And these factors do correlate with COVID-19 vulnerability and mortality. The pandemic has really pulled the blanket off and really highlight what America needs to improve on, right? Healthcare the access to healthcare, not just during the pandemic, but pre, because a lot of what underlying issues where people are dying for heart conditions and, and diabetes and asthma, they're all conditions that could be at least prevented from earlier, right? That's why the death toll among poorer and black and brown people are so much higher, access to good healthcare. The other thing is obviously unemployment. We went from three, four percent unemployment to probably, what, 35 percent unemployment right now. So it's hard to build a system during a pandemic. So this highlights what America needs to improve on. Sometimes you have to take the Republican or the Democrat away from the politics and just highlight on basic issues and needs that America needs to develop. 
I hope he does. And you've made a very big shift personally, uh, converting your restaurants into community kitchens. It's a partnership with Food Rescue US, mm-hmm. uh, the World Central Kitchen and the Audible Company, and I think you've distributed around 50,000 meals. You yeah. might want to uh, tell us a little bit about how it rolls. We were given choices right away, right? This we saw our entire life work slipped right through our fingers and it was hard and it was devastating. But I did know that I still had a relationship and I have knowledge and we have a team around us that was willing to go in. And knowing, living in Harlem, knowing that this would impact our community vastly different than it would impact other communities in America. So we partnered with Jose Andres and World Central Kitchen. We started serving in Harlem almost right away. So I'm extremely proud of what our teams have done collectively. The people behind it that said, we, when people were leaving, they said we're going in to help. Because when I worked that line that I'm about to walk up to now in about an hour, we start serving at 12 o'clock. The new regulars, right? They come at 12 o'clock, but really the line starts shaping around 9.30, 10 o'clock. It's a line around the corner. Let me just ask who you're feeding here. Are they mainly people who are having difficulties affording food before the crisis? Or are you meeting? And in that line, you must, I guess, you talk to, to people waiting there, your new customer base. Were they put in the position by the pandemic? Well, it's a blend, right? If you asked me March 15, yes, there were predominantly people that were either homeless or had nowhere to go and they needed food. And now, nine weeks into this, our line has shaped. Now it's people that just lost their jobs. People that never thought that would have to be in a line for food. So we are practicing social distancing on that line. Very often, the homeless people are actually guiding the people that have less experience with how it is to wait for a shelter, how it is to wait for food. So it's a very interesting line. So you see, in worst of times, you actually also see the best in humans. The conversation, the dignity that that line has every day, it's unbelievable. And what kind of things do you cook? Because for being a chef, you used to food being an adventure. The world is your oyster, if you're an oysters mm-hmm. kind of guy. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, there are constraints here. There are constraints of what you can, can get. Is the ingredients readily for the numbers of, of people that you're preparing meals for? And obviously you need to make the dollars go a long way. So give us an idea of what you're serving. Well, you know, once a chef, always a chef, and you want an audience. And guess what? We have an audience. And I call them my new regulars. These might not be bankers. These might not be professors at Columbia, but they are our audience. And they have an opinion. They tell me, hey, chef, I like the chicken better yesterday. Or how come I didn't get an apple today? You know, they have opinions on it. And, you know, it's in New York. So people will voice their opinion regardless if it's a soup kitchen or not. Right. Our chefs take pride. Like you will see something like a fish gumbo, for example, or a grain bowl or something like that. So Jamaican jerk chicken uh, with roasted sweet potato puree. So it's not that far off of the comfort food we were serving. Obviously, there's less garnishes and so on. But uh, the level of pride that people put into the food is tremendous. And it does many things by serving. It gets us a chance to get jobs back. We're now doing this at scale in Harlem, Newark and Miami. We now have 
10 restaurants in each community serving four to 500 people a day, which means that 4,000 people in Harlem, 4,000 people a day in Newark, 4,000 people in Miami, which also then means that staff is slowly coming back and we're doing it in a safe way. Second part, the food infrastructure that is completely interrupted. Now also the farmers, rather than burning food or throwing away food, they now have a pipeline of selling food to us. So it's a really important that when you rip restaurants out of communities, you can't just think about them as eating places, but they're also a very important place for so many other jobs. Let's talk a bit more broadly about the future of the restaurant industry. You really are fighting right now, but overall, the industry employs, I think, around 11 million people in the US, more than the entire population of, of Sweden. Many chefs have warned and written to Congress, indeed, saying that they need more protection for independent restaurants. How worried are you about the future of the sector? Our industry is going through one of the toughest times ever. And you're right, there's about 11 to 12 million people working in the industry. There are restaurant workers in the United States. I'm extremely privileged. I have a platform. Me and my family will be fine. It's tough, but we just have to have a couple of slimmer years. But for a lot of people... This is everything. I've heard of numbers of 80, 70% of all restaurants will not come back. So it's very, very, very difficult. But it's not just the people that work in the restaurants. When you pull restaurants out of a community, so goes all small retail. That barbershop that you love, that incredible nail salon. We move to neighborhoods as urbanites very often because what type of restaurants, pubs, and speakeasies are in those communities. It's part of the DNA, it's part of the heart and soul of those communities. If this threat to the future of restaurants, as you say, with all those neighbourhood kind of network effects that go with it, is so endangered, you could say that it's hard to find any industry isn't struggling right now. Whatever help you get will be limited by what kind of public finances will be available to support it. So what sort of assistance would really make a practical difference here? A couple of things. Only 10 weeks ago was Independent Restaurant Coalition created. And so that's actually one of the silver linings out of that. We're coming out with a coalition with independent restaurants and chefs that are working together with Congress. So the PPPs, the loans discussion, is done so it fits independent restaurant, not chain restaurant. Those are vastly different. Our needs versus a Chick-fil-A or a McDonald's are vastly different. And it took a long time for Congress actually to probably understand the complexity of independent restaurants, but at least we're talking to them, they, they understand us, they understand our challenges better, and we are hopeful for better results. The loans that we were supposed to get, it's important that the small restaurateurs and independent restaurants are all getting it because those are the people that are most in danger for never, never, never coming back. And then once we get the loans, making sure that we can extend that period before we start paying back the loan. Because the question will really be, who are we opening back to and for? And if customers are not feeling confident going back to restaurants, then what? So we all tested in terms of creativity. We all try different things from curbside delivery to home delivery products. Everybody's trying different things. But when do you think people will want to come back? I was interested in that for a couple of reasons. You've got Sweden, which never really locked down. So you have restaurants there. Have you been just keeping them open in that Swedish way of people 
running their sort of social distancing largely themselves. And then in America, you have different stages of reopening where I think you decided for the moment to stay closed. Just explain the the balance of, of where you are now. Yeah, I mean, we stayed open with four properties in Sweden and we're slowly reopening. Sweden was not fully closed, but also it wasn't full capacity either, right? Because as a society, you can you don't have to be closed for people not to go out. Do you know what I mean? So it's 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 not fully true to say Sweden never closed down, but it's there somewhere in between there. We're opening our properties one by one, and we're probably going to run at 20, 30, 40 percent occupancy if for a very very long time. So we have to readjust our business plan and we have to adjust there. Our businesses also blend between travelers, locals, and conference business, right? And that conference business is not coming back for a very, very long time, even in Sweden. In terms of the US market, we are going to open for curbside delivery in a couple of weeks, and we see what that brings us. And and we are social habits, so people will create a place like Harlem. Maybe it will be maybe we create a picnic basket, and people go in the park through social distancing and have some type of events there. You know, we cook food. We will figure out where we can find a market. It's not going to be easy, but we're going to do everything we can to find a customer and to serve the customer. Yes. I'm just taking the, the kind of slightly more pessimistic view, there is a big impact coming. The scale of recession is already large and is going to be larger. So disposable incomes are going to be way down. People's confidence in eating out, which is often a bellwether for what's going on in the broader economy, putting aside capacity and costs and the complications that COVID-19 has brought to your business. Could it be the end of the restaurant industry as we've come to know it? It's fascinating how you say that. You know, we co- I come to this very different, right? You know, I was born in a hut in Africa, and I came out of that hut. I dreamt to go to America and open a restaurant. I had no money to open a restaurant. I did that. You can argue that being black and being an immigrant, that people, we have been in pandemic for many, many years. We've always been given very, very the short end of the stick. And I say that because those are the sources of strength that I draw from at this moment. The odds are so against you, so if you can overcome that, I know I can overcome this challenge as well. I just don't live in those other realities because those were not opportunities that I had. And how much progress do you think you've seen? You've reflected there. You feel, like, as you said, you had the sharp end of the, short end of the, the stick. It was difficult for you to get the loans to get in the room as you were breaking in and rising up your profession. Have we made progress in restaurants and the world around it for people of colour? We have lots of room to improve. Uh, you're asking at a very difficult time. We have the pandemic. We have the, just come in the middle of the Ahmad, the jogger in, in, in in Georgia, and obviously the George Floyd, and I can go on and on and on. So we have to start looking at each other as human. Racism is is bigger than the pandemic, and um, it's killed so many people and created so many levels of injustice. I don't have the answer to all that. I do know that I have a responsibility to my son to give him all the courage and empower him to go out there every day to stay strong and and that's something me and my wife we have to navigate 
But I do think I'm extremely privileged because I was raised in Sweden and I choose to come to America as an immigrant. That's that's just that. I did not come here as a refugee. I came here as an immigrant. And when you do that, you also have the choice of going back. Uh, And I don't take that lightly. We all have different opportunities and challenges and my privilege to come from from Sweden. What what was your reaction when you heard the story of George Floyd's and fatal police brutality against black men, not not new, sadly, back in the news. How do you relate to that discussion about what it means to be an African-American today? And these are moments when a light is shone on injustice, on what can still go so wrong in the society that you've succeeded in. And what kind of emotions or reflections does that prompt from you? Well, you just hope that the narrative that we so often are used to, you hope that it's going to have a different outcome. Why does it always have to be a black man and there have to be white cops? Why does it, why, why that, you just want a different outcome, right? There's so much anger. There's such, so much false narrative there. There is so much generational racism and depth that has to be dealt with there. But I do think... The George Floyd, you know, the fact that people are engaging in it hopefully will lead to change. My heart goes out to his family. Um, And it highlights that the world does not look the same for all of us, right? But I do think also the bird watch incident in Central Park, that's the silent tonality of racism. It's different. It's female. It comes with privilege. Here we have a a black man doing the most peaceful thing you possibly can think about, being in the park bird watching, specifically politely ask, hey, do you mind taking care of your dog? And then she turns around and said, hey, I'm gonna call 911 and say I'm being attacked by an African-American man. That level is equally dangerous because the white male rage is something that we are used to, we've seen before. The other one is more silent just as dangerous. And I think a lot of people should think about that because that is, it sits in society in a way that you can't... Pernicious in a a quieter, but it's encountered more often. And the level of privilege and and using it as a weapon, that is for me, and what could have happened to him. And I, I have so much respect how he dealt with it because he was calm and peaceful. What do you make of the broader mood politically in America now? We're down to two candidates for the presidency in November. What would a Trump America Mark II or a Biden America feel like to you? Uh, two very different choices. Um, I can't predict the election. With President 43 and 44, with Barack Obama, you had a president that governed all America and worked every day at it. America had a choice and that chose Donald Trump. And it's a vastly very, very different America. The good thing with democracy is that every four years or so, it's another election. And I, and I hope that people can vote, go out and vote, and uh, a change will come. Joe Biden has risked alienating black voters with his off-the-cuff comment that those black voters considering voting for Trump ain't black enough. Uh, the suggestion is that you know, he sort of said it in a casual way, but it was seen by a lot of people as sounding proprietorial to the black voter. 
taking something for granted and indeed to kind of you should decide who's black enough. How did it land with you? I mean, the reason why diversity is important is because when you surround yourself with people from different ethnicities, you also have an opportunity to learn from them. And I think that Joe Biden's comment wasn't correct, but I cannot, if I would stack up Joe Biden's comments versus Donald Trump, 40 years, not just comments, but also history when it comes to people of color. We can go back to the 70s when he did not rent out to African-American women because they were black. We can go back to Central Park Five when he took out an ad in the New York papers of five young black men that were accused of a rape that they did not do, but it altered their life forever. So for me, I wouldn't even put them in the same bracket. Does Joe Biden need to work on diversity, more informed about it. Sure. So let's start that conversation. Let's have that dialogue. Let's work with him on that. For me, it's not even comparison. I know you've cooked for Barack Obama. I think you cooked an Indian vegetable curry for his first state dinner. Would you accept the invitation to cook for the present president today if it were offered? I cooked for many US presidents. You know, food brings people together. I've not cooked for Donald Trump and I don't think the invitation is going to come. He has many people that would love to line up and cook for, for him, so I don't think that's a worry. Um, I, don't, I also don't concern myself with hypotheticals that um, are not inspiring to me. I have a reality. I, I have 3,000 people who are going to serve today. That's what I focus on. We should, just before we close, look to No Passports Required, which is your TV series exploring immigrant cuisine in America. There are family stories, first and second generation stories you've been telling here. There's stories of assimilation into local communities. What has exploring that angle of food and what food does in the wider society, what has it taught you that you didn't know when you launched on the project? You know, it was just one of the biggest privileges of my life to be able to tell new American stories telling them through food, telling them through the incredible work ethic, the love they have for this country and the different narratives, whether it was Vietnamese in New Orleans or Mexican-American in Chicago or Italian-American in Philadelphia, and the list goes on and on and on. It has just been amazing to travel the country and listen to people's stories, how food brought people together and their journey. Well, I was very struck by the idea of, of food as a journey, of course, because that seemed at such a tantalising thought at the moment as travel isn't an option for so many of us uh, for the foreseeable future. So continue us just a moment on that journey. Where would you take us through the plate? What would you choose for me to eat if I could join you on that culinary journey? I had to start you off with some fresh new potatoes and some herring and horseradish from my grandmother, Helga. Uh, she might also send you a chaser of uh, Swedish vodka with that. <laughs> Lingonberry infused. I'm kind of feeling the knees, yes. as, as you say. And then we jump back <laughs> I on, think that would help. <laughs> and then we jump back on the bikes. And then I probably would uh, make you an Ethiopian Dorawat stew, which is a chicken stew that my wife makes that is absolutely amazing. And we continue to bike up here in Harlem and maybe I would, we would finish at a cafe at Melba's here in Harlem and we would have a red velvet cake. Through that journey, you would see my life. Interesting choice. Red velvet cake does divide people. Yes. <laughs> Any English food 
you like sometimes gets a bit of a, how should we say, a, a lumpy reputation in the restaurant world. You go for fish and chips or roast beef and Yorkshire pudding? There, there's a lot of good English food that I love. You know, in East London, you have a lot of like liquor shops and, and where you can buy like, you know, eel and with sort of like a spinach sauce with liquor and mash and stuff like that. Just like real <laughs> old school. Because for, for me... Oh, that is old school. You're going to the eels of East London. Yes. Half of the audience is probably thinking, I'm not going there. No, anyway. <laughs> go there because there's not a lot of them left. So for me, it's like something I really like to take someone to. You're on. Standing invitation. Yes. Bike ride in Harlem. Yes. And then... An eel pie in East London and anything you just don't like to eat. I mean, as a chef, you can't really say that. You have to stay open and curious. You can't. Look, for me, it's about, uh-huh. be, I'm, I'm allergic to buckwheat, but any other food that is cooked with sort of like fierceness and you're, you have to attack food a certain way, I love that. You know, it's like, that's why I'm in the game, to see different cultures, learn about them. And I'm just as curious as I was as when I started. Marcus Emerson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you've been cooking in these last few weeks and months, which meals have been a particular lockdown comfort to you or have enabled you to travel from the comfort of your own kitchen. No passport required. What will the restaurants of the future look like? And when you can get to one, what will be your first order? I can't help thinking about that Ethiopian chicken stew. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For a deeper dive into America's handling of the crisis, tune into Checks and Balance, our weekly podcast on the road to the presidential election. That's Checks and Balance every Friday from Economist Radio, wherever you listen. And for more of our journalism, do subscribe. Economist.com slash radio offer is the place to go. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.